Well, we're starting a new series, and in this uh, first week, we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about identity, that is, who we are. And I think, when I think about identity, a place where a lot of us find our identity or try and maybe change our identity comes uh, when you go off to college. You, you have a lot of people, they, some of them go off the deep end, some of them change extremely ways. And I, I, when I think of this, I think of my friend uh, Bill, who I met in college. And uh, he was one of the guys I met early on. He was on my dorm floor. He introduced himself as Bill. And uh, we didn't really think anything of that until uh, later on uh, when I was actually in his hometown for his marriage and that the reception, everybody was getting up and talking about him and, and several of his college friends got up first and, and talked about how much we enjoyed Bill and liked being around him. And then uh, one of his sisters got up and she said, it's so weird hearing y'all call him. She didn't say y'all, she was from up north. Uh, but she said, it's so weird hearing people call him Bill. She said, to us, he's not Bill. Bill is my dad. He's Billy. And uh, w w what Bill had done is he had uh, grown to not like his name, Billy, as much. So on the first day of college, he decided, well, guess what? Nobody from my hometown is here. So I can introduce myself as Bill and, and, and rename myself now that I'm here at college. So he called us Bill and we didn't think anything of it until that reception when it, we realized we had the fleece pulled over our eyes and that he was really Billy to his hometown. Uh, now that's just a, a little example of, uh, you know, how you view yourself can affect the way you act, the way you treat others, the way you present yourself. And in the address of a letter, uh, there are times, particularly in scripture, when that reveals a lot about the person's identity. As you read Paul's letters, and particularly the introductions, he usually gives you a whole lot of theology. He gives you a whole lot of his Christian identity. So today we're going to be talking about uh, what is our Christian identity? What is our identity in Christ? And how does that change the way we view ourselves? And in order to do this, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Titus as we start this new series. And we're going to be looking at the introduction. I'm going to try and cover three verses, which I thought was going to be an easy task until I attempted it in front of a Sunday school earlier. And Paul's introduction is so jam-packed with meaty theology, with deep things, uh, that we're going to struggle to get through these three verses. Hopefully, we'll make it to the end, but if not, we'll return to this topic next week. Hear now the word of the Lord, Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, going all the way through verse 3. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifest in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, we, we, we have in this introduction 
as I said, a whole lot of theology, and, and Paul is kind of brilliant in the way he does his introduction. In this introduction, Paul introduces a lot of the ideas, the, the themes that occur throughout the book. And, and one of the major themes that we're going to be focusing on this book is that grace appeared. Grace appeared. That's a big theme in the book of Titus. Grace appeared, and because the grace of God appeared, that changes everything. Because the grace of God has appeared, that changes everything, and it changes everything in a radical way. And, and while today we're going to be focusing on how does the appearance of the grace of God transform our identity, I want you to realize that that is just one piece of the puzzle of a larger process of things that have been changed by the appearance of God's grace. And... and it's important as we talk about identity that we mention the process by which a spiritual formation, Christian formation, occurs. And uh, this is going to be emphasized as, as we go throughout this book, but if you get the process wrong, you're going to run into issues, you're going to run into problems. And, and the, this process is that our theology forms our identity which then transforms our actions. Our theology transforms, uh, forms our identity, which transforms our actions. And it's very important that you understand the order of those things, that who God is and what he has done, that's what theology is. Theology is just simply the study of God. So who is God? What has he done? What is he like? What is his character? That is foundational for everything. That is the starting point. And that because God has revealed himself, because he has shown himself, because he has sacrificed himself, we have the opportunity to become his people. And as we become his people, we have this new identity. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We're formed into a new nation. We're made a people. And with this new identity comes new responsibility, new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, new ways of speaking. So that translates itself into transforming our action. Now, I want you, as simple as that is, to realize that almost every other world religion functions the opposite direction. Is this, okay, if you act a certain way, and, and by the way, this can happen in corrupted forms of Christianity as well, where legalism and other evil forces seep in. That, okay, if you act a certain way, that, that's what makes you a Christian. You know, there's forms of this type of false Christianity very prevalent in the South. Okay, you act a certain way, you do these certain things, that'll make you a Christian, and then once you're a Christian, that's going to put you in a right relationship with God. You, you see how when the process flows the opposite way, there are major problems. That our actions are ultimately the, the source of our salvation, the source of our religion. No, no, no. In Christianity, it is the opposite. It is the person and the work and the character of God that is the starting point for all those things. But one of the things we 
want that to be a starting point, but we don't want it to be an ending point. Here with Paul's introduction, we see that for him, who God is and what he has done has transformed every aspect of his life and his personal identity. Now, one of the things I did, I was kind of curious. You know, we read the Bible and we see these introductions of Paul. And, you know, it, I mean, it, it sounds so long, formal, theological. You know, he's like, I'm Paul, a servant, an apostle, and who've been saved by the, you know, it's like he goes on these theological tangents and long uh, introductions. And, you know, I think this is just the address. This is the dear so-and-so from so-and-so. In ancient letters, those were put together at the beginning, so you didn't have to read all the way to the end to find out who your letter was from. Um, you, you know, this is, this is just the to and the from of his letter. So I got curious. And I thought, you know, is this just a thing that Paul does? Or in other ancient letters, you know, what were they like? Were they like the way we write, dear so-and-so, from so-and-so? Or were they like Paul, where, you know, you go off on these long-winded ex explanations of who you are and what God's done for you? And uh, so I did a little bit of research, not a lot of research, so take this with a grain of salt. But I found two addresses uh, in, in two letters. Both were from soldiers writing back home. Uh, by the way, when you read those letters, you realize, you know, some of the things people were dealing with back then are the same as now. Uh, one of them was a soldier writing back to his family, and uh, he was complaining. He said, uh, listen, y'all, I wrote y'all, I told y'all how I was doing, and I asked how you were doing, and you didn't write me back. Why aren't you writing me back? You know, he's complaining. I'm, not, I'm missing home. I'm not getting enough letters. You know, y'all need, need to step up your game. Uh, so here are how two letters that I looked up uh, start from, from the, the Roman era around the first century. Okay, one is uh, Apion to his father, Lord Epimachos, many good wishes. Okay, that's one introduction to a letter. Here's another. Aurelius Polion, a soldier of Legio II Adiatrix. That's probably the, the legion he's a part of. To Heron, his brother, and Pluto, his sister, and his mother, Sinophis, the bread seller. Very, very many greetings. All right. Those are two introductions to letter. Now, if you look at the way Paul wrote and the, then the way we write, dear so-and-so, from so-and-so, who's that closer to? Th that's kind of closer to the way we're writing. Okay, so one of the things I want you to realize as, we, as, as you look at the Scripture and as you look at this introduction of Paul is, you know, this isn't just the way people wrote back then. Paul has been radically transformed. And so much so that even his introduction, even an address of his letter is filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can't help but infect and flow into every aspect of his life. We see that even in introducing himself, his identity has been transformed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's look at how he describes himself. First of all, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, now what does this mean? It means that Paul, both in his mission and message of his life, is not determined by himself. He, he says, I am a servant. A, a servant 
really a bond servant or a slave is the way in which he's describing himself. There, there's some freedoms and rights they had, but guess what? Their life is ultimately determined by the command of another. That, that is, the orders that somebody else gives, the commands that somebody else gives, that's what determines their activity. That is what determines the mission that they are on. So Paul says, I'm not serving myself. I'm not pursuing my own objectives. I'm not going after the things I want. I'm a servant. And therefore, the way in which I live my life, the mission I'm pursuing, the things I am about is determined by another. This service is described as a servant of God. One of the things I, I think about when I think about this is, you know, we kind of live in an age that kind of looks down on, on servants or, or, or people uh, doing household labor or various things. Um, but one of the things we have to realize is, is that this is not Paul saying, you know, this is this holy, humble, lowly work I'm doing. Now, he's saying, look, this is something high. This is something honorable that I'm about. Not necessarily the activity, but the one for who I am doing the activity brings it honor and status. If you are talking to somebody and they say, and you say, well, you know, what do you do for a living? And they say, a gardener. You might not be very impressed. If you then say, well, you know, where do you garden? They say, well, I work at the White House. You might be a little more impressed with them than wouldn't you? Not necessarily because the type of work that they're doing, but because of the one they're serving. Oh, man, they, they must be really good at what they do. They must be really connected if they're a part of that. In the same way, Paul call, calls himself a servant of God, which to degree is humble, but at the same time, it's almost a, a brag. Joshua, when he's describing Moses, describes him as a servant of God. King David is described as a servant of God. There are these, these people in the Old Testament, and, and their work, their activities, is described as they were a servant of God. This is a high calling. Can you think of anyone greater, anyone more glorious, anyone more magnificent that you could dedicate your life towards serving? He first of all says, I'm a servant of God. That is, my mission is determined by God. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not only is my mission determined by God, but I'm an apostle. That means my message is determined by Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. A apostle can have uh, several different meanings. Sometimes it's, it's used in a real technical sense. I think in, uh, because of the overarching theme of Titus, Paul probably here is using it in his more general sense. An, an apostle was an officially designated messenger who was sent to convey not their own words, but the words, the message, the word of another. They're they a messenger, they're an emissary, they're an envoy, maybe like a, a, a diplomat who's sent to negotiate on behalf of another. Their primary objective isn't to establish their message or to accomplish their purposes, but to establish the purposes, to 
convey the message of the one who sent them. So, so Paul is here saying, my identity is not formed in what I determine for I, myself, but in who God is and in who Jesus Christ is. And because of who God is and because of what Christ has done, it changes the mission of my life and it changes the message of my life. And by the way, all of us have a mission and a message that we are proclaiming through our words and our actions in our lives. Whether you're intentional about it or not, the way you're living and what you're saying is determined by what your mission and your message in life is. I think of an example of when I was just a child, uh, when I was, I don't know if I've shared this before, but when I was in a child, my grandmother, uh, she had a, a condo in, in Georgia and they had a pool at that condo. And I, I went down and, and I was playing in the pool and there was another kid in there and this kid started bragging about his dad and what his dad did. And uh, I, I apparently got really upset about this. Uh, so I started to brag about my dad. And uh, for those of you who know my father will we'll find this more amusing. I told him, uh, I also bragged about a dog, which we didn't have. I told him <laughs> that my dad did karate on TV um, and that I had a, 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 a thousand pound dollar dog. I don't even know what that means, but I, you know, I was just trying to create what I thought would be the most impressive thing, you know, to one up this kid in the pool who was who who bragging about these things. I, I don't know, I, I was real little when I did this, but, and those of you who know my father know how amusing the idea of him doing karate on t television is. Um, he doesn't quite have the physique for it. And, but that's what I thought would be the most Im Im impressive thing, and I think, at that point, whoever was taking care of me kind of realized what was going on, kind of dragged me out and said, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Um, so what, what, what was the message I was conveying? Well, the message I was conveying is, you know, my family, what my father doing is more important than what your dad's doing. So what, what am I doing? I'm trying to one-up him. I'm trying to elevate myself, I'm trying to establish myself. That was my mission, and my message was determined by that. That, that's a, a silly example, but it, it shows us how a child, my mission was self-centered, wasn't it? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to elevate myself. I'm, I'm trying to lift myself up by bragging about my dad and my dog. I guess those were things that impressed me at the time. But what is our mission? What is our mes message? We're living in an age, by the way, where the mission and the message isn't ever found in anything outside of ourselves. Our, our culture says uh, that the, in order to find your mission or your message or what you're about, you need to look inward, not upward. By the way, there are some traditional cultures that, that say uh, you, you find your message outward. That is, you know, whose family you're a part of, uh, you know, what nation you're a part of, that determines who you are and how you act. In ours, it's very individualistic. It says, hey, you look inward to determine who you are. You look at your desires, your, your wants, and then formulate your identity out of that. Christianity is, by the way, different both, both to the 
uh, traditional cultures and, and the modern secular cultures as well. And then it says, no, 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 we look upward to determine who we are. Uh, by the way, in our day and age, it, it's easy to see where people find their identity, where people find their, their security. Uh, it's bizarre in the ways in which they do it. People now form their identity based on their desires. It, 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 we, we see this particularly in our day and age in, in terms of sexuality. You determine what your sexual desires are and then you form your identity around that. Then the message you proclaim is determined by the group with which you identify. And, and this is a, a huge area of idolatry. And, and by the way, our, our culture is individualistic. We, 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 it's easier to notice in people that are different than us that are trying to form their identity through their sexuality or other things. But there are other areas in which we are resistant to the rule of God in our lives. You want to know one of the easy ways to kind of determine what area of your life you have resistance to the rule and authority of God in your life? It's usually the same areas that you're resistant to the rule and authority of government over your life. So, so for the left, what do they want? They do not want the government to tell them to what to do with their bodies. Okay, I, don't tell me what, how to live sexually. Don't, don't legislate sexuality. Uh, abortion, I can do with my body what I want. That, th those are, are symptoms that are typical of the left. Now, on the right, there are areas that the right is resistant to the rule and authority of God over their lives. And where are they typically resistant to the government imposing its will in their life? Well, uh, don't raise taxes. D don't touch our money. That's where we find our security. I earned it. I worked hard for it. Don't, don't touch it. Don't do anything to threaten it. There are areas of our lives where we are resistant to the person and the work of God. By the way, that's, that's not any type of political commentary on, on which, one is which political party is better. It is a self-diagnosis to figure out in what areas of my life am I resistant to the will and to the work of God. Where am I resisting Him and His will? We should be servants of God. That is, God determines our mission in our life. We should be apostles of Jesus Christ. That is, the gospel should be determining the words and the message we give. By the way, our mission has been commanded and our message has been manifest. You see that a little later on in, in the passage. In verse 3, it says, At the proper time, God's promises, God, the hope of eternal life, was manifest in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The message and the, the mission are intertwined, aren't they? The mission has been commanded. Christ has commanded us to go out into all nations, baptizing them, making them disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And Christ promises us he will be with us in that purposes. 
Christ has commanded us to put us on mission. What is our mission? To proclaim the message about Jesus Christ and who he is and all he has said. They're intertwined. The mission has been commanded. Our message has been manifest. What has it been manifested? It has been manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're almost halfway through the first verse. (laughs) We see that Paul has his identity from God and his purposes are for God. But we see even though that it is from God and for God, it benefits the elect. It says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. You know, something can be for somebody else, but benefiting others. The example I think of comes from the scriptures when it talks about God as a king inviting many into a wedding feast. And he says to his messengers, go invite people. Bring them in. Bring them off the highways and the byways and invite them into this wedding feast. Now, those servants who go out to invite others into the wedding feast, who are they obeying? They're obeying the king. They're doing it for him. But who does their message benefit? It benefits the people who they tell it to, who respond appropriately to the invitation to come into the feast. Paul's saying, look, my identity and my activity is rooted in God, who he is and what he's done for me. But the activity he has called me to is beneficial for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. By the way, we're we're not going to have time to even look at what does call Paul, not what does call Paul, what does Paul call Believers in this passage, he calls them God's elect. Remember how we, how we said who God is and what he has done should be forming our identity and transforming our action. That's a theme throughout this book. We don't have time to delve into it, but God chooses us. The work starts, continues, and ends with the activity of God. We'll get into that more and more as we go through the book. I just want to call your brief attention to it right now. But Paul's activity benefits the elect. Now, what aspects of the elect does it benefit? It says their faith and their knowledge of the truth. Paul declares who God is. He's on mission, on message. And what does that benefit? That benefits the faith of the elect both in in those who haven't yet heard the message in receiving it and those who have received the message by faith in growing and strengthening their faith. We want people to receive faith. We want people to continue in faith. We want people to grow in their faith. Paul is saying the activity to which God has called me benefits the faith of the elect. It strengthens them. It grows them. Now, saints, there are a lot of activities that the church should be involved in. I believe we should be involved in justice. We should be involved in hospitality. We should be involved in caring for the sick, the needy, the weak, the elderly. But 
saints, we must never let those things substitute the main thing. That our ultimate objective is for people to have a knowledge and faith in the one true God. We don't want just to have more comfortable, more informed, healthy people who end up spending eternity in hell. That is not our objective. That doesn't mean we ignore the health, the physical needs of people, but it means that we keep at the center of all things the realization that people are in desperate need of God. Paul says this benefits their faith and their knowledge of the truth. The, the two go hand in hand. You grow in faith as you grow in the knowledge of truth. What is your faith in? Your faith is in the truth of God. Paul, in, in his writings, if you look through multiple letters, you'll see what's he trying to protect? What's he trying to guard? What's he trying to foster? He's trying to protect people's faith. He's trying to protect the truth of the gospel to keep it from the corruption of false teaching. We'll see this as the book continues a well. Now, his goal isn't for them just to have faith for the sake of having faith or truth for the sake of truth, but this faith and knowledge of the truth should produce something in their lives. He says, which accords with godliness. We, we said that our theology should be transforming our identity and producing a certain kind of action. He is saying that once we know who God is, what He has done for us, how He has made us a people, it should transform the way we live. We should be distinct from the culture around us. If grace has appeared, if Christ has come, that should change everything. And if we look at believers' lives, they should be radically different than the lives of those around them because they are living in light of a radical reality. This is one of the reasons why we're calling this series the zeal of the redeemed. There are certain things that we should be passionate about as believers. And more than almost any other book that I can think of in the New Testament, Titus emphasizes that we should have good works. Now, he's, he's very careful to say these good works don't save us. These good works aren't the starting point, but they are a fruit. They are a result. They are an outworking of who God is, of who He has made us, and what He intends us to be. He says, this faith and knowledge of the truth should result in godliness in our life. Now, what motivates this godliness? We have that next, in hope of eternal life. One of the things we have to do is we have to make sure that our hope is focused in the right place. Saints, if, if your only hope is to live a comfortable life, is to live a, a safe life or to live an easy life, you're not going to be a very good Christian. You're not going to be about the purposes that he has for you. But if your goal is to inherit the eternal life which God has promised before ages began. That change your changes your perspective a little bit. 
We, we've mentioned one pole that determines our direction and our activity in this life, and that is the grace of God that has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. That should change everything. But do you know what? There's another appearing that should be transforming the way in which we live, and that's Christ is returning in glory to establish his rule and authority over all the earth. It, as, as we live between those two poles, it should influence the way we do everything. Christ has come, that should change anything. Christ is coming back, that should change everything. Once in a manifestation of his grace and coming again in a manifestation of his glory, that should be transforming all of our activities. It should have us acting in godliness. Why? Because we have the hope of eternal life. Hope for something that God has promised. Now, it, one of the things we'll see throughout the book of Titus is that Paul is writing to Titus, and, and Titus is in really a, a difficult area where, where the culture itself was ungodly, even more so than some of the surrounding areas. Uh, some of the things and the character traits that existed in Crete at this time were just, you know, they, they were known as kind of wicked people. They were known as liars. They were, they were known as, as wicked and, and evil, lazy, self-indulgent. I mean, I'm sure we can't relate to those things in our culture. But one of the things we, we, we see in this is that also, you know, your gods affect how you live. Here he says this promise of eternal life comes from God, which God who never lies promise. Now, we, we skip over that sometimes. But the character of God is important, and the character of our God would be surprising to the ancient people. Do y'all ever read, like, you know, things about Zeus and people like that? Or maybe you had some lessons back in school on the classics of ancient literature. You ever read some of the things that Zeus did? I mean, it seems like about half the stories about Zeus are him going down to earth, disguising himself. Why? So he could have sex with somebody. You know, and so what is that showing? Then so just like people, the gods are deceptive. Just like people, the gods can lie and trick you. Can't really trust the gods, can you? Why? Because they're deceptive. They're two-faced. And they're powerful. Here, he, he, he's telling them that our God is different. Our God can be trusted. When our God makes a promise, we can be sure of it because his character is to never lie. And another thing we see is that God's promises are, are, are not really rooted in how we respond or how we act, essentially. They're essentially rooted in his character. When in his character? It says, he promised this before the ages began. That is, before the beginning, God knew what he was going to do. God knew what he was going to accomplish. God knew how he was going to provide salvation in Jesus Christ. God completed his work of election before the world existed. 
So our, our hope, our assurance in spiritual things doesn't come from our activity or doesn't come from a kind of capricious or wavering God, but we have the assurance that because God is trustworthy, because he is good, because he is a God whose promises are rooted in his character, because there's nothing higher to which he can appeal to, we have assurance. We have, we have hope. We know that what God says is true. Now, these promises existed before the ages began, but at a proper time, they were manifest. They were revealed. And by the way, just looking at these things, do you see how God's character should be forming our identity? That we have a God whose character is holy and pure and good. That we have a God who chooses us and elects us, that we have a God who is trustworthy, that we have a God whose promises can be relied on, that we have a God who reveals himself, that, that manifests himself, that makes himself known to us, not a God of the shadows, not a God who hides himself, but a God who reveals and shows himself. We have a God who is a Savior, who works for our salvation, who works for our redemption, who has bought us with a price. If you start from that, if you get the theology right, you begin to realize who we are and what we've been called to. At the proper time, he manifests in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He's got a mission and a message from God. His identity is rooted in his theology. One of the things I, I want you to see is that part of our objective is to preach and proclaim who God is to a lost and dark and dying world. One of the things we see here is, is Paul views this as an entrustment and also a command. He says, God has commanded and entrusted me with this, with this message. One of the things I want you to realize is, is that we have a command as well from God to go out into the nations. We, we have been entrusted with the gospel as well. We have the revealed word of God to guide us in all things pertaining to life and godliness. We have been entrusted with that. And I, I want you all to think, we have kind of a narrow view of preaching. I, I want to give you a broader view of preaching. Usually when, when you think of preaching, you think of somebody standing behind a nice wooden podium like this talking about the Scripture. Uh, as saints, I, I want you to see that, that for Paul, his view of preaching was much broader than that. That his words and his lifestyle wherever he went, whatever he did, even in writing a to and from section of a letter, was infected with the gospel, was filled with gospel fullness. That he preaches even when he's giving his introduction. And the saints, I want you to be a people whose activity and whose words are constantly filled with the gospel with which we have been entrusted. When you're interacting with grandkids, 
when you have a waiter come up to you, as you're visiting elderly, as you're going to the hospital, no matter what you're doing or, or, or how you're doing it, you should be a gospel-infected person who is revealing the love and the character of the God by whom you have been saved. We preach in our actions. We preach in our words. We preach in our attitudes in a dark and dying world. We should be lights. We do this not so that we're elevated, not so that people say, wow, what a, what a great guy he is. See, they really, something's different about them. Their activity is different. And you know what? Their, their identity is different as well. I wonder what's going on with them. And you say, look, my activity and my identity are determined by my theology. Let me tell you about who my God is. Let me tell you about who my Savior is. Let me tell you about how He's transformed my life. How I once was lost, and now I'm found. How I once was living in darkness, yet He brought me into His light. How I once was a part of the kingdom of darkness, and now I'm a part of a kingdom of light. How I once was a child of wrath, but now I am a precious son or daughter of the Most High God. And do you know what? That message has changed me. It changed the way I see and relate to God. It changes the way I see and relate to myself. It changes the way I see and relate to others. We have been entrusted with the message of God. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the glory of God will be revealed at Christ's second coming. Are you living in light of those two poles? Are you proclaiming the message with which you have been entrusted? There is a brief period between those two poles where we have the opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Guess what? When he comes back, it's over. We no longer get to proclaim that message. We will live in constant praise of that person. But at that time, the window of opportunity for declaring His glory to the lost is over. Are we living in light of who God is? As we study this, I think of a couple quotes. There's one from John Calvin. Because we're short on time, I'll just give you one from J.I. Packer. As we study this, and as we look at how theology transforms our identity, which transforms our activity, I want you to not be confused what I mean by theology, what I mean by the knowledge of God. This isn't mere intellectual assent, it more information that we receive. In fact, there are times I'm, I, I worry that we begin, we, we teach people too much in the South. You know, we, we live in the, the Bible Belt filled with Bible studies. And I worry a lot of times, you know, we're teaching people new things after they haven't applied what we already taught them. That's a dangerous thing. Why? Because they have information that they haven't yet applied, and now we're giving them more information. When Christ comes in judgment, what does He judge us on? Based on what we know and what we do. Well, if they aren't doing what they already know they should be doing, should we really be telling them more? That, in a way, can be condemning them further, because now we're giving them more truth that they haven't applied and lived out. 
I worry about that for myself and for y'all as I talk to you. <laughs> so one of the things we want to make sure is that this knowledge that we're receiving about God is having its intended effect for in us. Uh, the, there's a fabulous quote by J.I. Packer that deals with this. He's talking about the difference of knowledge about God versus knowledge of God. You know, think about there's a difference between knowing about your wife and knowing your wife. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? He says, the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Let me read that last part. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. The saints, as we study this book, I hope that you don't just gain more information about God. I hope you do come to see Him more clearly, to love Him more fully, to grow in your faith towards Him, to recognize that who He is and what He has done transforms our identity. And with this new identity as a new people, we are called to new activities. And as we do all this, I, I hope that you grow in your zeal for the things that God has called us to, that you have a different passion than the world around us, that you have different joys than the world around us because we have a different God than the world around us. To Him be all glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. For our benediction, I'd, I'd just like to read a passage that comes later in Titus. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I hope who Jesus is results in a zealous lifestyle for you. Amen.